<laughs> Welcome to episode three of our show. LJ, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Will. How's your evening going? It's going uh, splendid. I got uh, a nice bubble tea today. So, you know, jealous. Never, you can never go wrong with, with bubble tea on a, on a Wednesday. Hump day. But actually, no, long weekend this, this upcoming weekend. It's so a long excited. weekend, yeah. I'm really yeah. looking forward to that and uh, looking forward to uh, spending some time in the backyard, uh, one of the warmest uh, weekends yet for this year. So that's awesome. Yeah, and, and happy uh, Easter to all those celebrating. And I know there's been a lot of holidays recently to the different cultural communities. So we're really excited uh, for all of you and, and, and hopefully you have some time with your families. Uh, I'm speaking today from the unceded and traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tooth, and Kaikat Nations here in Burnaby, British Columbia. Today I'm speaking from the territories of the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nation. And we acknowledge again uh, the role of uh, colonialism, of uh, the, the harm done to Indigenous communities and our, the importance of not only recognizing this as a, a legal contract at the beginning of our show, uh, but also in, a, in our own efforts, in our own podcast. And we'll have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of ideas coming up uh, in this area and we look forward to sharing them with all of you. For this episode today, we wanted to delve into immigration storytelling, which I think for both of us, LJ, is one of our favorite parts <laughs> of immigration the human story behind the process that we often have to do the paperwork for. And tonight I'm gonna to code switch a bit. And if you'll uh, indulge me for a few seconds or maybe a minute. Magandang umaga, tanghali, hapon at gabi sa ating mga tagatangkilik. Salamat sa pagsubaybay sa aming podcast, In Light of All Circumstances. Ngayong gabi ating makakapanayam ang isang mamamahayag na ating, aking kababayan actually, si Jonah Bailon. Uh, isa siyang mamamahayag uh, at ang gaya, ng mga, gaya nga ni Jonah, mga mamamahayag ay tunay na nagbibigay buhay sa mga kwentong kadalasang naiiwanan sa paglathala ng mga naratibong dominante. Uh, so right now, I'm going to take the opportunity to introduce our guest, uh, Ms. Jonah Bailon. Absolutely. So uh, Jonah Bailon is a freelance journalist for New Canadian Media. She immigrated to Canada just before the start of the pandemic. Uh, and her immigration route was through spousal sponsorship. She's currently, as we mentioned, a freelance journalist working for New Canadian Media, but some of her work has also appeared in the Toronto Star and in many other publications. Uh, she's an incredible writer. Uh, she was a copywriter in the Philippines and in Hong Kong. Uh, and then we actually met uh, Jonah LJ through both being interviewees in, in, in two separate stories that she did, eh? That's right. And tonight we flip the mic. It's our turn to interview the journalist. Absolutely. So we, we were both in two stories, one on caregivers and one on the Canadian experience as code for racial profiling. We find that her work is super uh, humanizing. It, it touches the hearts of, of those who read it. We're super excited to have her on our show today. Um, full disclosure, I was a former contributor for the New Canadian Media and a brief time was the chair of the board. This is unrelated to any of that. Uh, but I wanted to declare uh, all uh, any possible conflicts, of course, as we always do uh, on in, in, in these type of settings. Hello, Jonah. How are you doing today? Welcome. I'm good. Thank you, LJ Will, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
glad to have you on board. So why don't we dive into it? We did a little bit of introduction and uh, we introduced you as uh, one of the up and coming uh, journalists in immigration news. Uh, but you know, we wanted to learn more about your background. So could you give us maybe three things or maybe milestones that captures your um, you know, immigration story? Mm -hmm. Well, that's very generous. Thank you for your kind words. Um, I really am new to writing about immigration. Um, so three things. I Well, I was born in the Philippines um, and then moved to Hong Kong before I even turned one. I grew up there and then moved back to the Philippines just as I was wrapping up high school. Um, so I lived in the Philippines for a while uh, and then moved back to Hong Kong um, and spent a lot of, you know, my earlier professional life uh, there. Um, and then two years ago, moved to Vancouver. So I think to answer your question, one part of my immigra immigration background is really um, that I've moved a lot because of other people. Um, my dad was an engineer and he was among, I guess, you know, a wave of Filipino engineers that migrated to Hong Kong in the early 90s. Um, and then it was because of my parents' immigration that I became a permanent resident. And it's because of that, I was able to move back to Hong Kong from Manila with relative ease um, after I graduated, after I worked for a bit in the Philippines. Um, and then my coming here is because of my husband. He is Filipino-Canadian, he's a Canadian citizen. Um, and that's how I was able to migrate through spousal, um, spousal sponsorship, I think it's called. Um, I hope that answers your question. I, I'd say that probably is one highlight. Um, a second, I guess the second piece of my story or just really my own experiences is that as an immigrant, you shift identities a lot or you negotiate your own identity a lot. Um, I, growing up in Hong Kong, um, attending a government school. It was a local school. We had classmates from India, from Pakistan, from the Philippines, from Nepal. You assume that is the norm in the rest of the world. And it wasn't really until I moved back to the Philippines that I realized what I considered normal was only one type of normal. Um, and it wasn't until then that I also learned that what I considered you know, my being Filipino is only really a fraction of what my new friends, my new classmates considered being Filipino. Um, yeah, and then coming back to Hong Kong as an adult, um, it's a different kind of shift now too. So the second piece I would say is a lot of the identity negotiating or identity shifting. Um, you know, we, I moved to Hong Kong before I turned one and I grew up there and I, I went to a school, a government school. It was a local uh, school in Hong Kong where I had classmates from India, from Pakistan, from the Philippines, from Nepal. Um, and so everyone I knew had home elsewhere and I assumed that was normal. It wasn't until uh, my family migrated back to the Philippines that I realized my normal was only really one type of normal. Um, and what I had considered myself being Filipino is really only a fraction of what, you know, my friends in the Philippines considered being Filipino, having grown up there. So it was very different. Um, and I think when I was younger, it was all as, as when you're younger, you're always looking for ways to fit in. And I think 
when I first moved to the Philippines, it was, okay, how do I fit into local Philippine culture? Um, and finally, you know, I, I spent seven years, only seven years in Manila or in the Philippines. When I finally moved back to Hong Kong, this time, like, as I would say a young adult, um, I realized as well that um, I could say I grew up in Hong Kong. I am I'm Hong Konger generally, but I was also, I was also freshly coming from the Philippines. And, um, and so it was, it was, again, a lot of shifting, like, well, how much of my Hong Kongness am I going to assert now or insist on? Because I really, you know, I grew up here and this is such a big part of my identity. Uh, and, and when when do I play out the Filipino parts of me? Is it when I'm with my Filipino community, when I'm at home with my family? So sorry, that's a lot of words just to say, um, I think a second big piece of my immigration um, experiences, really a lot of identity shifting and negotiating. Um, and third, I would say now, having come to Canada, it's a lot of really, it's a lot of reckoning, a lot of wrestling, not to go too deep into it, but um, I migrated to, so I moved to Vancouver two years ago uh, in 2019 and doing all the paperwork as an adult, um, encountering the immigration system firsthand um, was difficult. And I think I've been really fortunate by many measures, but it was still really frustrating, for example, to be required certain documents just because my passport didn't qualify for some, you know, you know, way waiver of certain requirements. Um, realizing that even if I, you know, had an education, even if I had a job, things I felt should be sufficient um, for some reason, again, because I, you know, I had a Philippine passport, it wasn't counted or wasn't enough, so to speak. Um, so um, going through all of that, I realized that um, immigration is a lot, I think it's different having distance from it and having your parents go through it um, and seeing other people do it. Uh, that's very different from you yourself going through it and realize and having to <laughs> sort of wrestle with the barriers, uh, the variables um, that affect your own personal experience. So when did you first hear about Canada? And I, and I tell this story with my a story of my <laughs> own that uh, when I when my spouse first heard of Canada was when essentially she met me, the, the, the whole family had no clue where Canada was. They knew about the United States, but they, they knew very little about Canada, let alone Vancouver, uh, where, where we're, we're both, you know, call, we call our hometown now. So how about for yourself? Like, when did you first hear about Canada? Was it always on your sort of radar prior to even a relationship or did it somehow come up in the context of other relationship or, yeah. Right. It's funny you bring that up because I, I mean, I, I think at the back of my head, I knew Canada was a country a lot of people immigrated to. Um, it wasn't on my radar in terms of, if you had asked me 10 years ago where I wanted to move to, I would have picked another country possibly, um, just really out of preference at the time. Um, and also after I moved back to Hong Kong, I had a lot of friends that were Canadian Chinese. Um, and it was very interesting because again, I was sort of starting out in my career. You know, I was meeting a lot of people who had moved to Hong Kong from Canada to build their own professional lives. Um, so, I mean, 
my impression, somebody actually told me this, so it's not an original impression. Someone told me Canada is a great place to retire. Um, so that, that was sort of the impression I had uh, of the country prior to coming here. Interesting. There's actually a Chinese saying, uh, just uh, good mountains, good water, uh, but very boring. So it's uh, suitable for, for, for retirement. I don't know if that uh, still reigns true today. I guess with COVID, everyone's a little bit bored. Um, can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit, maybe Jonah, also about the hybridity? I mean, that, that, that part really fascinates me where you talk about how when you go, when you went back to the Philippines, you felt like you know, you're taking part of that, you have to relearn sort of parts of it or take parts of Hong Kong with you there, but also going to Hong Kong as someone from uh, the Philippines, a Philippines national, like what did you learn uh, about maybe your own culture or what, in what ways did you hybridize those two uh, really strong and beautiful cultures? Mm -hmm. So I I think to to the first part of your question, um, when I moved to the Philippines and I did my last year of high school there. I attended a school in Cavite. Um, it's a province south of Metro Manila. And I was, t- we were told that the English, uh, that the medium of teaching would be English. Um, so <laughs> as a 14 year old, a lot more confident, I suppose, uh, than I probably should have been and eager to make friends, um, I was all, you know, I was very outgoing and I was speaking in English. And it wasn't until a recess that I realized English was used in the classroom. Outside of the classroom, everyone spoke Tagalog, which is fair, um, but I didn't know that. And I think just to be transparent as well, um, in, I'm gonna speak from my experience. I don't know if this is true for all Filipinos, um, but if you spoke English in, in the Philippines, there, there are, connotations to that you know there are assumptions about where you're from or what your family background is like um so my family is very middle class i just happened to grow up in hong kong where we were taught in english we all spoke english um and so coming uh, I, i think trying to fit in and learning more about my my roots I guess you could say. Um, I I think I learned a lot about, you know, a lot of unspoken expectations, a lot of how you, how you should behave or how you should speak to people, how to, not to say that I was trying to be fake. I think I was just really learning how to integrate and assimilate. Um, yeah, and I think, I think English as a language there are things you can say that are not offensive, you know, when you're joking around with friends. Um, I think if I said the same things in a, in the Philippines, you know, it might be blunt. It might not really be nice or cool to say. It might actually sometimes even be offensive. So those were those were the things I was learning. Um, in terms of, I think, hybridity, maybe I was learning to dilute a bit of my Hong Kongness um, or what I knew to be Hong Kong, myself as a Hong Konger um, at that age. Um, and then coming back to Hong Kong from the Philippines was also very interesting and very difficult. Um, I, I, was very, I was very eager to go back to the Hong Kong I knew as a kid. Um, but again, you know, years pass and you grow up and people around you grow up and you're starting to enter the workforce. I don't think at that time I was aware too much about what 
being Filipino or, you know, what that might mean socially. It's not, not that it means anything negative or positive socially. I just really wasn't aware of any of these things. So I think, um, you know, to the best of my ability, when I moved back to Hong Kong, I was just trying to be myself, just trying to reintegrate back into Hong Kong as a city. I can go down this rabbit hole too, so um, feel free to stop me. I love how it actually circles back to your point about shifted, uh, shifting and negotiated identities and trying to fit in, fit back in into the Filipino cultural matrix, then having to move back to Hong Kong, which is a really excellent segue to uh, the question that I wanted to ask you about, you know, appreciating all of this, uh, I guess, like stepping back from it, um, appreciating it from the lenses of race, class, and gender, and moving thousands and thousands of kilometers between two homes, so to speak. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, your understanding of these nuances when you went back to Hong Kong? All right, I, I can start with class. It's very difficult and uncomfortable to talk about it, but I, I, I want to be honest. I feel like... Um, There's so, you know, there, when we, when we, when we say Filipino or when we tell somebody you're Filipino or you're from the Philippines, I now know there are assumptions to that. Um, and assumptions I am learning are really, really untrue. And you can meet a Filipino in Hong Kong you can be two Filipinos in Hong Kong and they, they would have wildly different backgrounds. And you, the same thing will happen when you move to the Philippines and, and here, as I'm learning, in, in Canada too. Um, and I say class because, um, in, like I said earlier, in the Philippines, when you speak in English, there are also assumptions to that, assumptions that I wish did not exist because it reflects or it you know it, it reflects the reality that there is some form of hierarchy there is there is power for example um to attending an international school there is power for example to sounding more western to speaking english with an accent um in the philippines and i i didn't attend an international school um i um i I, I wouldn't say I spoke with an accent, but I, I, I'm, I won't deny it if people asked me about it. Uh, I, I won't deny that people did ask me about it. The class intersectionality, I feel like, is, is key because it, it, it has so many implications. I remember attending university in Manila. If you've been to the Philippines and you've seen how the transport, transportation system works or does not work, um, you would understand that you, you'd assume that a lot of people um, that attend university probably live close to the university or if they, they had to tra travel back and forth, you know, you, you knew it was, it was a misery to commute in the Philippines. You would also probably just guess that people drove or were driven to, um, to their campus. Um, I commuted uh, from Cavite to Manila to TAP daily for my classes lj i see your Whoa. expression um i can yeah. talk i feel like this is a story for another day i can talk to you about how like what an experience that was just commuting um the hour and a half to three hours depending on which way you were going um right. daily oh uh, and that was one way anyway 
sorry, all of that to say, all of that to just sort of illustrate um, the, the the very daily, everyday, banal reality of commuting in the Philippines. And I remember somebody comment making a comment to me uh, and saying, I you, know, you don't sound like you commute. And I don't know what they meant by that. I will not assume, uh, you know, what they meant by that. But when I heard that, it also made me ask, like, well, what do you mean? It does not sound like I commute. Um, because I do. Um, so, so I think that's a class. I feel like that's a, a, a I, I think class, like I said, is, is, is really key. Um, another example I would say is um, in Hong Kong. Um, I know a lot of, I have a lot of friends that are teachers um, and I am real, I'm aware that um, there, there is an, the unspoken sort of rule that a lot of um, schools will hire you if you sound more Western in your English, if you're an English teacher, for example. Um, and this, this, is a, this is something I, uh, so, so I think an, uh, a clear example for me would be, there was a time in my, earlier in my career when I applied as sort of an English teacher. Um, it, 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 I did that for like a, a month and it didn't really last long, I didn't stick to it. But long story short, I was at an interview and um, the interviewee was really nice. Uh, she, was, um, she was very candid with me and she was just talking and somewhere in her in her spiel just looking at my resume she says oh the kindergartens they won't hire you because you're not white the parents won't like that so on and so forth so it was another another very telling comment um and again my experiences are very different i don't think this is true i wouldn't say this is true for every filipino um but i feel like these are realities that we can't deny like i think in many ways i've been fortunate because of my pro proximity somewhat to whiteness. But, um, and, but that is something I'm only like learning recently. Um, yeah, and, and it's, it's really uncomfortable, but, but I feel like it's, it's a reality. Um, so. And sorry, to your I point, hope, in yeah. fact, you're, you're, no, you're, you're absolutely right. These are really powerful points you're, you're, you're teasing out of uh, you know, your life. And thank you for sharing all of that. Um, one thing that really strikes me is uh, the fact that, you know, the, the interstitiality of your identity, if I may, um, the, uh, you know, having to fit in and having to constantly flip code switch and having to evaluate like different cultural contexts puts you in a very interesting position to actually write about immigration stories. What do you think, Will? Absolutely. And I think that's one thing um, that I'm curious about, Jonah, is you know, you went from copywriting and, and, and probably some writing that was in a very different context to now, uh, you know, calling individuals who are in the middle of very sometimes traumatic experiences, uh, a lot of heartache and pain, and, and they're sharing your stories and they're opening up to you. And I was wondering, uh, you know, with that transition, how, how has that been? And, and what are some of the early lessons you've learned from this process that you could share with other aspiring writers of those who want to better tell stories? Mm-hmm. Um... That's a great question. I, I've only been writing about immigration for the last four months, so I am by no means an expert and I am learning a lot from, you know, other folks in the industry. Um, but what I have learned um, 
And just, just going back to English. So I did write, work as a copywriter in Hong Kong for a bit. So a, a lot of my work as a copywriter involved um, translating from, you know, just, just very rough Chinese to English translation and then turning, you know, tailoring them for the more native English market. Um, and back then I didn't really value that as a, as a skill so much. Um, but looking back, I, one thing I've learned is that um, people use language very differently. People communicate very differently. And I think it's, it's really, really important to just be conscious that when someone is, uh, uh, is trying to express themselves in a language, in their own second language, um, it might also be challenging for them. And I, I, I think um, for me as somebody that's interviewing them, I I think there really is, is no harm in sort of just rechecking what they've said to be sure you understood them correctly. Um, but also to, you know, keep in mind that if, if they, they say something, for example, that um, like if a Westerner would would hear it, it sounds very strange or very different. Like just, just kind of look for the meaning that they're trying to say in there because it's, it's somewhere there. They're probably just not, just not communicating it as fluidly. Uh, someone's being in English uh, in a first language. So I think that's one thing I've learned. And and a second thing that I have learned is that, um, you know, people, immigrants coming here, it's really not easy. And I think there, there can be an assumption after reading a lot of immigration stories, there can be assumption that, well, maybe some people are just unprepared, you know, or maybe some people didn't read through all the requirements properly. And that's why when they arrive here, they're having trouble. Um, and I've learned that that's really not true. Um, and what, what I feel like is, what, what I'm learning is that when someone doesn't have power, it doesn't mean they do not have agency. And I think immigrants have agency and I feel like it's really important when we're writing their stories to center the story on them. Um, a lot of the times, for example, you know, uh, for example, someone I'm speaking to, you know, I, I did, you know, I had to leave my job, I had to leave my family, I had to save to come here, only for all of these, you know, only to be unable to move forward. Um, I think it's on the one hand, it's very easy to be like, oh, you, you know, poor you, what happened? Why can't you do this? I think on the other side of that coin is, well, you've done everything. What are you and what are you facing now? And often what immigrants are facing is really a broken system, or if I may say it, a system that might be rigged maybe against their favor. So mm -hmm. I think it's it's really important to be cognizant of the way we tell people's stories. It's, it's really less likely that these things are happening not because immigrants don't have power. It's because there are systems that really disempower um, the people that come here. Um, that, that's very specific to certain stories, I think. Um, and, and so maybe I should, I feel like it's also fair to point out that there really, you know, there really are so many facets to any human being's life. And I feel like immigra immigration is one facet. It would be really nice as well to, to hear stories about, you know, what people like to eat, for example, or what people like to do, things like lifestyle, you know, other facets to, to the life of immigrants. I, I hope to be able to, 
tell more of those stories in the future. But um, so these are, I think, things that I, that I, I am learning. And I mean, I, I hope it's helpful. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and do you think, is it as much you seeking out those stories or are all those stories also like, are, are, do you find that people are also coming to you to share their experiences or is it a bit of both, like just through your uh, work so far? Is it, do you feel like you're sort of jumping into their space and being asked to be their guest or are some of them being like, Jonah, I, I read what you wrote. I need to talk to you about, you know, this, what I'm going through because I don't think anyone else can write it better than you can or, or explain it in a humanizing way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's been a mix. The few, uh, the few stories I have worked on, it's been a mix. Um, I would say 50, 50, um, the first story I, I wrote was the result of me looking for people to speak to about something else entirely. Um, and, and the person was generous enough to be like, Hey, this, you know, I'm, I'm coming to you, not for what you were asking for, but there's something else I want to talk to you about mm-hmm. that I think is an issue. Um, so um, I, I've been really fortunate um, for, for, for that balance. But um, yeah, and in terms of coming to people for their stories, it's, you know, it's a lot to ask for someone, not just for their 20 minutes, 30 minutes, but them to sort of recount their lives. So um, it's, it's hard. And, and I think, I, I, I think people can say no, they don't have to, they don't, Oh, any journalist their story but if they happen to be willing and they happen to be open to having their story shared then then that'd be great as well so yeah that's a really good point that uh, segues into my question actually um what would you change in order to actually uh you know change the tone i suppose um of uh journalism and uh, where it meets immigration stories That's a good question and a big question. I, I think when uh, on one level these story these immigration stories are really important. Um, I think a part of me is cognizant that the stories I'm telling aren't necessarily news, and that this is the first time it's happening. Um, a lot of the times I'm learning the, these maybe the issues, maybe the problems have been going on for years and years and years. Um, so I, I think it's really important to continue covering these stories. Um, and like I said earlier, I think it's also really important to start, you know, to, to center stories around the, the, you know, the people we're writing about, the communities we're writing about. Um, I think in in every story there really is there really is a, t- a tension in there, and I think when we're talking about people, inevitably, there there is you know an element of a power imbalance, and I think we have to be really conscious of how we're framing that power imbalance. I'm not saying frame a story to fit your agenda. I, that that really isn't supposed to be what we're doing, but I I think more and more it's important that we you know we don't miss the humanity just the just just the reality that the next person coming to Canada is every bit the same as you and I and the only difference is that you know they're probably just waiting for another document um and and there's no reason the you I I think what I'm trying to say is on the one hand, it's important to honor the difficulties uh, and the realities. Um, but the, on, on the other hand, it's also really important to recognize the agency that does exist and the, the, 
you know, the, the willpower that is coming from immigrants when they come here. Again, oftentimes, I think a lot of the times what people are coming up against is a systemic uh, brokenness, is a systemic uh, imba- power imbalance. And it's really important to to ensure that that comes through. And it's not that a lot of immigrants are just struggling all the time. Often it's a broken system that is, you know, keep, keeping them there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One last question. I know uh, this conversation can, I feel like it go for hours. We're learning yeah. so much from you. You're an incredible speaker and storyteller. And I think both of LG and I are just captured by, by your, uh, by your words. I'm just here. in awe. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. So Jonah, uh, last question, um, and this one might be uh, a sensitive one, but I think it's it's worth asking. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of developments in Hong Kong recently, right? And and and, and Hong Kong being uh, your home for so many years, and, and you know either your 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 main home or or one of your two homes, if you consider Philippines and Hong Kong both your homes. Um, what are your thoughts about? Uh, the coverage right now of what's going on in Hong Kong and, and where do you think maybe, you know, being a journalist yourself, uh, where can more light be sh- uh, shone on the situation? That's a good and important question to ask. I think the coverage, I'm not reporting on it, so I can't really speak for those that are. I, I do think there have been reporters that are doing good work um, around the issue and a lot of a lot of these reporters I follow on Twitter um, um, and I personally am very curious to know more about the I guess I guess Hong Kongers who might be leaving because of that um, but equally uh, important I think are what you know, what it's been like for those that are rooted um, in the city that will probably not leave because it's their home. And for, for many as well, who don't have the option to leave. Um, I might just, you know, I probably haven't come across coverage of that, but I think those those areas are important. Um, yeah, otherwise I, I, I don't, you know, I, I think I think that those who have been covering it are doing a good job. Um, yeah, and and it's it's unfortunate what's happening um, I am aware that I am of one opinion. I, I think there are people that would disagree too. So, Welcome to the segment we like to call uh, Heart to Heart Talks. And Heart to Heart Talks, uh, ironically, LJ, I know both of us have an NUS story. Uh, mine is when I was at NUS for a brief summer and we were there with uh, students from the National University of Singapore on exchange. And we spent the whole time late nights uh, conversations in, in, in each other's residence rooms, talking heart to heart about uh, key issues that are affecting us right now. So I thought right now would be a perfect time to bring in the segment and talk about an issue that I know is uh, very, very dear to all three of us uh, and is very also uh, important and timely because of what's going on in, in Vancouver right now. Uh, of course, all across Canada as well. Um, my question, uh, and, and maybe LJ and Jonah, you can have a, a conversation about this briefly. Uh, and I'll, I'll listen because I think for, for individuals like myself, Chinese, not Filipina, not Filipino, uh, listening is what I need to do and what, what I think that the public needs to do uh, to the community. How do we give the proper flowers and proper due to the Filipino diaspora community so that they can build 
political power here. And in BC, we've seen a lack of this, frankly, from the way El Mabel Elmore, who uh, is an MLA, is getting the short end of the stick politically to now we're seeing the food and cultural assets at Joyce Collingwood, a very, very important neighborhood uh, for the Filipino community, amazing restaurants that, that's a center and hub uh, being replaced possibly by a new development. Uh, yet we still have so many amazing community advocates um, and LJ, I, I wish you were here in, in, in Vancouver. And Jonah, I don't know if you know some of these names, but individuals like RJ Aquino, Justine Ramirez. Uh, I told my brother, uh, Rene John Nicholas, that I would be giving him a shout as well. People I deeply admire, uh, you know, pushing change in, in the community. But how do we uh, make this happen? And what do you think the community can do both, you know, locally, but also nationally in Canada? Big, big, big question. Very big. Go, Jonah. <laughs> Um, I would actually would prefer for you, LJ, to kick this off. I, I think it's a big question, so I'll, I'll think about this one. Okay, no worries. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, it's, a, it's a really, um, you know, I think, Will, you hit the nail on the head. Um, that's a really good question, and it's a really big problem. Uh, whether you're coming in from organizations, whether you're coming in from uh, you know, uh, just as a newcomer, an individual in Canada, as, you know, new Canadian, Filipino, Filipinex Canadian, uh, however you identify, it's, um, it's a question of visibility, first of all. Um, I've talked to people in various organizations, uh, whether inside the profession of, of law, outside as a, a journalist, yes, I used to be a journalist too, um, it's, it's a question of visibility and uh, knowing who to identify, finding the role models. Not saying that the uh, you know, previous generations, it, the, the community is not lacking for role models and um, you know, um, leaders. It, it's a matter of exposure. So um, I was really happy, and I think it was you, Will, who tagged me uh, when Omni News Filipino was launched. Mm -hmm. That to me was a, a, a very important watershed uh, moment uh, we don't um, have enough representation, um, enough um, visibility, I would say. Uh, but uh, in my past decade of being in Canada, I want to say that the um, presence of visibility of uh, Filipino Canadians across the board has been steadily growing. And um, it's, it's exciting, but at the same time, there's a lot of work to be done uh in terms of like you know showcasing uh leadership um i just found this out yesterday that apparently there has not been a filipino canadian who sat in the house of commons for 17 years in canada which is very very puzzling for a population you know if you count per statistics canada about 900,000 filipino canadians or 900,000 canadians call the philippines their you know, home or they have some sort of connection to the Philippines. Um, but um, yeah, so th there, there is this group in Toronto, um, mainly Ottawa based, uh, that they're trying to essentially uh, encourage people, they encourage the uh, political parties essentially to, you know, um, ramp up on representation, essentially, when, when we're talking about this particular diaspora community. And you're right, Will, to highlight some of these talents uh, and uh, some of these like leaders, like Justine, I know uh, I've interacted with her a couple of times. She's, she's awesome. Um, it's just that they're never given the light of day, unfortunately. Um, and you're right. I think your, your words were very much uh, telling, being given the short end of the stick 
But, you know, we've had very important contributors in Canadian society um, from the Filipino Canadian community, such as Senator Inverga, the late Senator Inverga, the last person who actually sat in parliament, um, unfortunately passed away. So there currently is no representation for Filipino Canadians in parliament, which I think is a very big problem. And hopefully that's something that will change sooner or later, sooner rather than later. Jonah? That's great. I'm learning a lot um, from just what you said. And I think one thing I can say as a newcomer to Canada, I've been here for two years. Um, and as a journalist, I think um, there are so many different kinds of Filipinos. I, I say this personally because I'm very cognizant that I am Filipino. Um, and I also grew up in Hong Kong. Um, but then you, my, my partner, for example, he is Filipino. He also grew up in Hong Kong, but he spent a lot more time in Canada. And we've had these conversations where we ask ourselves, are we, you know, should we take up space or what do we have to say around this? Because our experiences as Filipinos are very different compared to someone, to a Filipino Canadian who grew up here um, and a Filipino who immigrated from the Philippines coming here. And I think what I'm learning is that it's okay. Um, you you can take up this, this space you do own. Um, and I think, um, I think the hesitation is fair and the, uh, the apprehension, like, can I, can I, you know, who am I to talk about Filipino issues, first of all, because of A, B, C, D, and E, uh, but who am I not either, you know? Um, and I think that's true for Filipinos anywhere, half Filipinos, quarter Filipinos. I think that's true where you grew up in. Um, and, and so I think, I think my answer really is to take up the space you do own um, you can be transparent about it. You don't have to pretend to be what you're not, but do take that space, especially if it's a platform or if it's, you know, if it carries any form of influence whatsoever. And, and I think um, as someone in media, uh, I used to be a lifestyle writer. I used to write about food and design. Um, and so lifestyle, you know, for better or worse, is still something I'm very interested in. Like, what is the beauty routine? of a Filipino someone, you know, a celebrity or not a celebrity, or where where do Filipino, like Filipino brands, I think what I'm trying to say is representation, not just in the very common or very stereotypical stories we find Filipinos in. Um, again, those stories are important. We should keep reporting those stories, but it would be really good to see more coverage as well. Not just, not just for Filipinos as well, but for racialized communities. Like, coverage and other aspects and facets of their own lives. Like, um, yeah, so that, that, that's how I, that, that's one way I think <laughs> um, we can own the power that we do I, have. I love how it circles back to humanizing the stories of, uh, you know, racialized communities. What do you yeah. think, Will? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I, I just realized sometimes all your, your, you know, your feel good stories that sometimes the news fills out uh, almost disproportionately involve uh, white people, frankly, and, and sometimes we have these stories, traditions, customs, uh, and even like how the community works behind the scenes that, you know, maybe parts of us want to keep some of this behind the scenes for, for reasons of privacy, reasons of, you know, maintenance to not have it affected. But when you bring that to the forefront and see what's going on, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, one of the things that for me, uh, and again, I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm sort of an outsider just commenting uh, and, and from any sort of position, but 
when the community comes together and shares resources, especially around food and, 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 you know, I see it on Facebook. I see it in, you know, when, when, when there's something good, like someone found this like amazing thing that, and now they're selling this fruit and then they post it up, all the homies start jumping in and like get order me one, order me one. And people who, you know, don't know each other from different, very different cities uh, in the Philippines uh, suddenly connect, you know, over language, over food in ways that, Sometimes I wish in my community we could do, but it's been so fractured recently that it's been tough to do so, you know? So you have an asset there uh, of connectivity and, and uh, hopefully that asset is, is worked to, 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 to leverage that power that the community uh, will get it to do. So um, yeah, that was, it was an so awesome conversation. Thanks for- That's a nice way to end that segment, Will. So uh, I guess we want to segue into the lightning round segment, don't we? I don't need the lightning round. The favorite section, we have to say, of, of yes. Jonah. So welcome to the lightning <laughs> round. Also known as Jonah's favorite section. Also known as it's almost dinner time in Vancouver and we need to eat. That's right. Um, <laughs> we have a few questions, Jonah. Uh, and we know that you love uh, food. So how about uh, I give the mic back to Will to ask the first question. All right. So... We're talking food again. Favorite dish in the Philippines? And we're actually asking more than just what the food is. Where are you going to go to get it? Where? If it's a restaurant, if it's, you know, mom's home, or where, is, where are you getting it? And I have one too, by the way. I, I have been to the, the Philippines. Uh, and I'm have, curious now. <laughs> I, I'm interested. I'll share a third, though. You guys go ahead. I actually want to hear your answer first, but... Um... I thought about this, and I, I think my favorite dish is kare-kare. Um, for those who don't know, it's a peanut-based stew. Um, mm-hmm. has oxtail, bok choy, eggplant, string beans. Um, often uh, consumed with rice and shrimp paste, uh, fermented fish, also known as magong. Um, so <laughs> that's my favorite dish. Um, here in Vancouver, uh, we like to go to culinaria. Um, I think... I, I will not cite the address because I can't remember, but um, culinaria and Pampanga's cuisine, which is also yeah. enjoys calling what I think. Um, and they serve really good kare kare. But that being said, I have so many Filipino foods, so this is a very hard singular choice to talk about. Um, Side bark, yeah. uh, Pampanga is actually the food basket of the Philippines. That's so. right. It is uh-huh. the food capital. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that. How about you, LJ? Uh, I want to say uh, the classic Filipino uh, uh, beef broth soup, uh, sinigang, sinigang na baka, which is sour, uh, sour soup. Uh, usually it's either um, tamarind. Sometimes it's other different, uh, I guess, like sour fruits or such as kamias. I'm not even sure what that is in English. Um, some people use, uh, I guess, uh, pineapple. I've, I've seen that. Not my thing, not my jam, to be honest. Uh, I, I like to stick with the traditional um, tamarind uh, paste. It's very Southeast Asian too, actually. Um, now that, because uh, uh, as Will mentioned, I did have some time spent in uh, in Singapore. And uh, what I've noticed was um, not only Sinigang has some Southeast Asian roots, it's also got, uh, Kare Kare also has like, you know, very common Southeast Asian, um, I guess, uh, tropes such as the bagoong, uh, the uh, shrimp paste. Mm. That's a, a common uh, fixture in Southeast Asia. In fact, it's not an exclusively Filipino thing, guys. Um, that's true. There's also, uh, <laughs> there's also uh, the, the peanut sauce. That's, that's very classic island Southeast Asia, in fact. 
you'll find that uh, as a dressing for the chicken skewers, the pork skewers in, uh, Sing in Singapore, for example. <laughs> um, yeah, so my favorite food would be Sinigang Nabaka. How about you, Will? <laughs> I'm curious. Okay, so I, I, I'm going to share a, a Philippine story. Uh, it doesn't evolve in X, so I'm going to apologize to my spouse in advance. Uh, hopefully, she doesn't listen to this. <laughs> but um, I'm uh, I was uh, I went to um, Manila, and then I went to Angeles City, uh, and, and this was back in 2011. And then I told my uh, then um, girlfriend that I wanted to grab uh, sisig uh from that was my second choice in, but in, keep going in, in actually yeah. in pampanga uh at aling lusing sisig uh, that's where it was invented had, yeah we had the the roughest journey there i think like she was puking like it was the worst kind of experience to get there because it was late night like we, we weren't like familiar with the, the weather and everything going on there but you know to get to that one spot and have that dish uh and it being a incredible and and just the, like just seeing all the all the families there everyone eating the same thing and uh, i still try to order it here but it hasn't been comparable to to the one from the the place in Pavanga having losing so that that'll be my choice but i love sissy although it's gonna show soon if i eat too much sissy that's a that's an excellent choice <laughs> i gotta say and you're right don't have too much of it it's not very good for you <laughs> cholesterol and all but yeah good good second choice jonah so um, let me start off with, uh, sorry, continue on with the next question. What are the pros and cons of living in a country permanently or semi-permanently um, beyond visiting that is, that's not your country of citizenship? Um, there are a lot of pros and cons. I would say that a con really is being away from family. Um, I recognize that I have cousins who are close to one another and I'm not as close to them just because we've been apart for so long. And when I visit, I come for Christmases and New Year's. So it's, it's really not the same. So that's definitely a con. Um, and um, the pros though, uh, just also exposure and meeting people of different backgrounds and different, you know, people come from everywhere and um, who see the world in, in many different ways. Like that's also, uh, that's a pro, I think, it, just the exposure. So that's what I would say. What do you guys think? So for me, well, um, it, it would be, uh, it would be China for the brief time that I was living there. And, I, and again, I was like in, I was an international student there. So I, I can't say it was like living long-term, but I stayed there almost for a year. Um, and I think the the biggest pro of course is, you get to watch things from this weird lens of, of like, I'm not here from here, but I'm, I, I'm here and I get to watch the people watching and, and, and sort of feeling like outside of everything. So you don't necessarily feel impacted. You can sort of act maybe in, in ways that, you know, if you were in Vancouver, for example, you wouldn't start a string, a call, like a, a conversation with someone on, like on the street randomly in a, in, in a foreign country, you sort of give yourself an excuse to, to do so, uh, to start conversations with people, to engage in things a little bit more, you know, testing your boundaries a bit. Um, but the cons on the, on the flip side are, are probably the same thing, like just feeling left out of certain conversations and feeling left out of certain interactions and 
hearing language that might be, you know, slightly unfamiliar to yours and, and you're never going to fully get it. And even if you get parts of it, you know, they're still laughing, you know, you know, they're laughing at you after you say your thing, right. That, you know, I, I remember for me, uh, it was trying to like negotiate at the fruit stand and, and, and they were just laughing at me because they knew like, this guy knows nothing. Like we're going to, we're going to get him for sure. Like, <laughs> and, and they're, and I'm thinking, oh, I got a good deal while they're, you know, pocketing the money and being like, that's awesome. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that, that's for me, it is. It's like being both an insider and an outsider at the same time it has its uh, pros and cons. I want to say uh, a hybrid of both your answers. I like to people watch. I like to, uh, one of the greatest pastimes of Parisians, I got to say, is sitting in cafes. And if you notice, if you've been to Paris, you'll notice that a lot of the cafes have their chairs facing outwards because a lot of Parisians are people watchers. So, so, so in a sense, that's sort of like, you know, where, where I stand in that. I, I like to observe people. I like to learn new things. Um, having spent time in Singapore, not my country of citizenship, for example, having spent a substantial amount of time in the U.S. and in France, it's, it's actually really interesting to actually learn something about them and also about myself and how, uh, you know, I position where in the world, where in this seriality of nationalities and identities do I belong? Where do I fit in? It's actually really interesting to, uh, you know, go through and live through. Wonderful. Great answer. So final question. And I know Jonah had a funny comment on this. <laughs> curling. Um, I, I low-key love curling. I don't know if I'll ever get all the rules and all the brushing and all the, you know, doubles and triples and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but ironically, it's one of the, it's, I think it's one of the most, one of the favorite sports of, of newcomers come here. We're like watching, they're like, what is this? But then slowly they're like, this is so much fun. Um, and actually, I don't know, Joan, have you ever been curling? I have never tried it. I feel like yeah. I should. We got to <laughs> next time, uh, hopefully when they reopen, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll set up a, a curling game just for fun. It, it's, it's super fun. Sliding all it around looks everywhere. fun. Yeah. Yes. So you must, if so you're going to form a curling team. Uh, which has a lead, a second, a third, and a skip, which you're part of. So three other, uh, with three other racialized journalists in Canada, who would they be and why? So we'll start maybe with Jonah again, our guest on this show. Um, yeah, this was a very, this is a very interesting question. I know nothing about curling apart from, I think how it, how it looks. I think I have an image in my head of what people do when they're curling. Um, so I had to look this up. Anyway, so I'll answer this question first with the why. Uh, my assumption being, I don't know if any of these people want to curl with me, but if we're going to work as a team, I'm going to learn from them. I'll be in proximity to them. I'll probably pick up a thing or two, you know, um, from what they know and how they've built their own careers. So I would say um, Janella Masso, uh, the host and anchor of Canada Tonight. I would also say um, Eternity Martis, um, an author and a journalist. Uh, she wrote the book, they said this would be fun. Um, I attended a talk she gave recently, I think about diversity in journalism and it was, it was golden. Um, and the third person, I don't think, I don't know that she would identify as a journalist necessarily, but she is uh, the editor in chief of a literary magazine called Living Hyphen. Her name is Justine Abigail Yu. Um, and um, yeah, so these are the three, <laughs> the three women I would love to, you know, learn from and work with possibly in a curling team. Why not? <laughs> oh, wow, that's awesome. LJ, your three. 
I'm not going to pretend to know curling at all. Like Jonah, I had to look it up and I feel like a terrible Canadian for not even like, you know, looking like it's only, it took me like 10 years to actually look, look it up. Um, so I apologize in classic Canadian fashion. But my picks, um, Michael Serapio, he's a host and anchor at the CBC. Um, in fact, funny story, we met each other at Alliance Francaise uh, during night school. Uh, we were both trying to pick up uh, French at the time. Um, had a lot of like nighttime chats and dinners and uh, he's a great guy and I pick him because he probably knows how to curl <laughs> he probably <laughs> at least understands the rule so someone can clue me in next would be you Jonah because I figured wow, that, judging from our conversation <laughs> that we'd both be noobs in this uh, new sport right uh, there's also Teresa Barrera over at Omni News um, yeah. as, a, as, as a third uh, I'm not sure if she does, but if she does, that would be great. Um, so at least Michael won't have to <laughs> babysit three people in the team. Uh, those are my picks. How about you, Will? So my three are Angela Sturt uh, from the CBC. I just think what she's doing around Indigenous issues and her writing and, and uh, speaking truth to power through journalism has been incredible. Uh, Nick Kuhn as well. I mean, we got to give our, our, our flowers to... Uh, Immigration uh, Godfather writing uh, Nick Kuhn, who's, right. uh, always brings the stories and, and tells them and has really transformed the way immigration stories are written. I think it's, mm -hmm. you know, a, a trailblazer in that respect. And, and finally, a local choice, Andrea Wu. Uh, I, I love Andrea. I think her writing on um, the uh, issues around uh, the opiate uh, crisis in especially the downtown east side and in Vancouver has been so humanizing, so eye opening. I hang on to everything she she writes and it educates me. And again, another humanizing writer. I don't know, Jonah, do you know um, Andrea? Have, yeah. you, have you met any of the three? I have not met them, but I followed their work. So I, I'm familiar with, with the journalists you all mentioned. Awesome, wonderful. <laughs> and, and we're going to be coached by Adrian Harwood because Adrian Harwood is Adrian Harwood. And uh, I just love <laughs> how Adrian Harwood doesn't, uh, you know, first of all, the years he puts in and put into the to, to, to being a journalist and being a Black journalist and also the way he he speaks out uh, even in light of all the corporate sometimes things that constrain him he, he's a powerful powerful voice so uh, he's going to be our coach adrian harwood <laughs> awesome complete lineup <laughs> complete lineup yeah. awesome well thank you so much jonah for being here this was such a pleasure lj i'm gonna let you give the flowers <laughs> Jonah, thank you so much for coming in today. Uh, we appreciate it. Thank you for speaking truth to power. Uh, we uh, are very grateful that you shared your stories with us today. And uh, we hope to continue our conversation off camera at some point. Absolutely. Thank you both, LJ and Will. It's really been a pleasure talking to you guys. And yeah, once the pandemic is over, uh, and LJ probably is in the West Coast, um, all over time. Bubble Tea and CSIG. We'll, we'll continue <laughs> yes. to do this. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, that was quite the um, conversation, Will. What did you think? Yeah, it was incredible. I learned so much from Jonah. I think she's so incredibly well-spoken, thoughtful. Um, and, and just there's so much depth. I mean, I love when someone has so much depth to, to the words and, 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 and you can tell she's totally channeling her experiences in, in what she says. And, and that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, her lived experiences are very much telling and it 
basically like permeates how she writes. Uh, you and I have been both interviewed by Jonah and it's it's uh, spectacular in how she frames her uh, her stories. Which actually brings me to my point that from the very beginning, the aim of this podcast was to humanize human movement, migration, the practice of immigration law writ large, really. And by sharing stories, lived experiences, and the voyages of our fellow new Canadians, we in turn remind ourselves of how every thread of the story connects with each other. And immigrant stories are treated like they're in the gray zone for the most part. They're stuck in the interstices of dominant narratives, um, trying to catch the attention of the everyday passerby. Uh, the reality, however, is that Canada receives approximately 1% of its population annually through new permanent residents. So while there is still, there is still a minority, this number is staggering in terms of its impact, uh, whether it's social, economic, or political, and that's across the country and it cuts across class provinces. And we need to be mindful of this, I think, and um, especially in how we forget the continuous institutionality of ingrained, um, I guess I wanna call it erasure of indigenous cultures, mm -hmm. um, which is too often forgotten in uh, histories and narratives of immigration. And too often we frame our stories with dominant narratives uh, while forgetting the stories of the subaltern. And I guess I, I sort of wanna end this with uh, a frame. And at the end of what, uh, at the end of the day, it's, you know, what we frame, it's how we frame rather, and what lens we use to perceive our current realities and perception is important. And that's where the job of a journalist becomes really difficult and very important at the same time. Framing is very important. And this is why Jonah's work is very important, especially to those who practice immigration law, whether you're a policymaker, you're a decision maker, you're a lawyer, a Quebec notary, or an immigration consultant. Um, or an immigrant yourself, uh, framing your stories, telling your narratives and humanizing those stories, very important things. Wow, that was a real talk. Thank you so much, LJ, for sharing that. Well, th thanks uh, for um, you know, helping me co-host this episode. It was very close to the heart and I hope that uh, people uh, had picked very interesting and very important points from you know, uh, living in the margins, but at the same time, uh, not forgetting that you know we all have lived experiences and that we are all human. Absolutely, and I, I love that this uh, episode also took us on a bit of a global trip from I know where we are in Canada, Vancouver, Toronto, to Hong Kong, to the Philippines, and and definitely I think it'll open some eyes and and uh, people will think a little bit beyond just the the simple narratives and 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 the mainstream narratives as you said that right. oftentimes reduce our stories. Uh, in ways that do not reflect reality and the complexities uh, by which we come and, and now live uh, on these indigenous stolen lands. So LJ, next week is a special one. I think we're going to actually uh, not have a guest, but for a right. very uh, special reason. And what is that reason, LJ? I believe Will Tao and Mr. Dang Zalan here are going to talk to immigration policy people. Really? How's the podcast going to be on uh, to sent to IRCC? Like, what, what's going on? This sounds very confusing. To well, me. <laughs> let me clarify that we're not doing the podcast with them as guests. We're actually uh, delivering a talk before policy people inside Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada. It's a great honor, uh, and uh, what we aim in our next podcast episode to do is to essentially give you a report of some sort 
of uh, our uh, interaction, our points that we will be raising, our interaction, and what the reactions would be from uh, our friends over at IRCC. So next week's episode is actually on the very, very important topic of transitions, which both LJ and I will be presenting on. And the reason we chose transitions is we've seen, especially through the pandemic, a huge negative impact on our clients and on individuals trying to navigate the system when they have to transition between statuses. Uh, so we are actually specifically looking at international students and caregivers, uh, but the broader context is definitely what we aim to better understand and hopefully share our experiences with the decision makers and the policy people so that they can make the rules uh, better for the community. Well, on that note, thanks for that, Will. And um, I'm really looking forward to the long weekend. I hope you have a restful one. Yeah. And please stay safe, everyone. I know right now we're heading into, uh, you know, we're already in the third wave of the pandemic and I know we're so close to the end and, and you know, not to sound like a public health official, uh, but I know <laughs> all of us, we, we really want to see you in person. We would love to do a live episode in the future. Uh, we hope through the long weekend, you and your family stay safe and healthy uh, so we can make that a reality in the near future. So thank you again for tuning in. This was episode three and thank you so much for being part of Imlight of all circumstances. See you next week.